Welcome back to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Kyle, bringing you this week's episode featuring Dr. Michael Greger speaking about his book, How Not to Die. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. The vast majority of premature deaths can be prevented through simple changes in diet and lifestyle. In How Not to Die, Dr. Michael Greger, the internationally recognized lecturer, physician, and founder of nutritionfacts.org, examines the 15 top causes of death in America and explains how nutritional and lifestyle interventions are sometimes better than prescription pills and other pharmaceutical and surgical approaches, freeing us to live healthier lives. The simple truth is that most doctors are good at treating acute illnesses, but bad at preventing chronic disease. In addition to showing what to eat to help prevent the top 15 causes of death, How Not to Die includes Dr. Greger's Daily Dozen, a checklist of the foods we should try to consume every day. Full of practical, actionable advice and surprising, cutting-edge nutritional science, these doctor's orders are just what we need to live longer, healthier lives. Originally released on our YouTube channel on February 11, 2016, and moderated by Googler Anthony V, here is Dr. Michael Greger, How Not to Die. Thank you. For those of you unfamiliar with my work, every year I read through every issue of every English language nutrition journal in the world, so busy folks like you don't have to. So every year my presentations are new because every year the science is new. I then compile all the most interesting, most groundbreaking, most practical findings to new videos and articles I upload every day to my nonprofit site, nutritionfacts.org. Everything on the website is free. There are no ads, no commercial sponsorships, strictly non-commercial, not selling anything. Just put it up as a public service, as a labor of love. New videos and articles every day on the latest in evidence-based nutrition. Now, if you've seen any of my presentations in the past, you know that I have addressed some of the most pressing dietary issues of our time. Like, what's the healthiest variety of apple, for example, or the most nutritious nut, or the best bean, or the best berry, or the best bowel movement? Who's number one and number two? Well, it was, certainly wasn't the New Yorkers here. Actually, the most constipated population ever described in the medical literature, outputting a measly three ounces a day on average. Maybe if you'd all just eat a big apple once in a while. <clears throat> but this year, today, I thought I'd lighten it up and ask, what's the best way to prevent death? Every year, the CDC compiles the top 15 causes of death. I said, well, let's just go through the list. 1 through 15, and talk about the role diet may play in preventing, arresting, and even potentially reversing our top 15 killers. Killer number one is heart disease. The National Journal of Epidemiology recently reprinted this landmark article from the 50s, which started out with a shocking statement. In the African population in Uganda, coronary heart disease practically non-exists. You say, wait a second. Our number one killer, practically non-existent, what were they eating? Well, they're eating a lot of vegetables, grains, greens, and they're protein almost entirely from uh, plant sources. And they had the cholesterol levels to prove it, actually very similar to what you see in kind of modern day plant eaters. Wait a second, maybe the Africans were just dying early from other diseases, didn't live long enough to get 
coronary artery disease. No. Here's age-matched heart attack rates in Uganda versus St. Louis. Out of 632 autopsies in Uganda, only one myocardial infarction. Out of 632 age and gender matched um, uh, autopsies in, um, in St. Louis, 136 myocardial infarctions, more than 100 times the heart attacks are of uh, the rate of our leading killer. In fact, they're so blown away, they went back to another 800 autopsy in Uganda and still just had one small healed infarct, meaning it wasn't even the cause of death. Out of 1,427 patients, less than one in a thousand, whereas here, it's an epidemic. Here's a list of diseases commonly found here and in uh, populations that um, uh, eat and live uh, like the U.S., but were rare or even non-existent in populations centering their diets around whole, unprocessed plant foods. These are among our most common diseases, like obesity, for example, or um, hiatus hernia, the most common stomach problem. Um, varicose veins and hemorrhoids are two most common venous problems. Colorectal cancer, leading cancer killer here in the U.S., Diverticulosis, the most common disease of the intestines. Appendicitis, the most, uh, number one cause of emergency abdominal surgery, gallbladder disease, number one cause of non-emergency abdominal surgery, as well as ischemic heart disease, our commonest cause of death here, but a rarity among plant-based populations, which suggests that heart disease may be a choice, like cavities. If you look at the teeth of people who lived 10,000 years before the invention of the toothbrush, pretty much no cavities. Didn't brush a day in their lives, no flossing, no listering, yet no cavities. Why? Candy bars hadn't been invented yet. So why do people continue to get cavities when we know they're preventable through diet? Well, simple, right? Because the pleasure people derive from dessert may outweigh the cost and discomfort of the, of the dentist chair. And look, that's fine, right? As long as people understand the consequences of their actions, as a physician, what more can I do? If you're an adult, you decide the benefits outweigh the risk for you and your family, then you know, go for it. I, I certainly enjoy the occasional indulgence. I've got a good dental plan. Right? But what if instead of the plaque on our teeth, we're talking about the plaque building up inside of our arteries. Another disease that can be prevented by changing our diet. Okay, now what are the consequences for you and your family? Now we're not talking about scraping tartar anymore. We're talking about life and death. <laughs> the most likely reason you and loved ones will die is heart disease. Now it's still up to each of us to make our own decisions as to what to eat and how to live, but we should make these choices consciously, educating ourselves about the predictable consequences of our actions. Atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries, begins in childhood. By age 10, the arteries of nearly all kids have fatty streaks, the first stage of the disease, and then these plaques start forming in our 20s, get worse in our 30s, and then can start killing us off. Our heart is called a heart attack, and our brain, the same process, is called a stroke. If there's anyone here this afternoon older than age 10, 
then the question isn't whether or not to eat healthy to prevent heart disease, but whether or not you want to reverse the heart disease you likely already have. But is that even possible? When research took people with heart disease, put them on the kind of diet, followed by populations that don't get heart disease, we were hoping to slow the progression of these, maybe even stop, arrest it from getting even worse, but instead, something miraculous happened. The disease started to reverse. As soon as patients stopped eating an artery-clogging diet, their bodies were able to start dissolving some of the plaque away, in some cases even severe triple vessel heart disease, arteries opening up without drugs, without surgery, suggesting that their bodies wanted to be healthy all along, but were just never given the chance. This improvement in blood flow on the left um, was after just three weeks of eating healthy. Let me share with you what's been called the best kept secret in medicine. The best kept secret in medicine is given the right conditions, the body can heal itself. If you whack your shin really hard on a coffee table and get all red, painful, hot, swollen, but will heal naturally, if you just stand back and let your body's natural, kind of your body's magic um, uh, work. Um, uh, but what if you kept hitting your shin in the same place every day? In fact, three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It never healed. You'd go to your doctor and you'd be like, oh, my shin hurts. The doctor would be like, no problem. Train for this. Whip out their prescription pad. Write you a prescription for it painkillers, you're still whacking your shin three times a day. Oh, it still really hurts like heck, but oh, feels so much better with those pain pills on board. You know, it's like when people take nitroglycerin for you know, angina, crushing chest pain, tremendous relief, but you're not doing anything to treat the underlying cause, right? Our body wants to come back to health if we let it, but if we keep re-injuring it three times a day, it may never heal. You know, it's like smoking. One of the most amazing things I learned in all my medical training was that within 15 years of stopping smoking, your lung cancer risk approaches that of a lifelong non-smoker. Isn't that amazing? Your body can like get rid of all that tar and eventually it's almost as if you never started smoking at all. And every morning of our smoking life, that healing process started until, wham, our first cigarette of the day, re-injuring our lungs with every puff, just like we can re-injure our arteries with every bite, when all we had to do, the miracle cure, is to just stand back, right? Stop re-damaging ourselves and let our body's natural healing processes bring us back towards health. Now, sure, you can choose moderation and hit yourself with a smaller hammer, but why beat yourself up at all? We've known about this for decades. American Heart Journal 1977, cases like Mr. F.W. here, such severe angina, couldn't even make it to the mailbox, started eating healthier, and a few months later he was climbing mountains, no pain. Now, there are new fancy new anti-angina drugs out there, cost thousands of dollars a year, and at the highest dose can prolong exercise duration, 
prolong the period someone can stay on a treadmill as long as 33 and a half seconds. It does not look like those choosing the drug route are going to be climbing mountains anytime soon. See, so uh, plant-based diets can not only be safer, cheaper, but work better. Killer number two is cancer. What happens if you put cancer on a plant-based diet? Dr. Dean Ornish and colleagues found that the progression of prostate cancer could be reversed with a plant-based diet and other healthy lifestyle changes, and no wonder. If you drip the blood of those eating the standard American diet onto uh, cancer cells growing in a petri dish, these are human prostate cancer cells, cancer growth rates cut down by about 9%, but put people on a plant-based diet for a year though, and their blood can do this. The blood circulating throughout the bodies of those eating plant-based diets, nearly eight times the stopping power when it comes to suppressing cancer growth. Now this is for prostate, prostate cancer, the um, number one uh, cancer killer specific to men. For women, it's breast cancer. So researchers tried duplicating this study with women and breast cancer cells instead. But look, they didn't want to wait a whole year to get the results. So they said, well, let's see what a healthy diet can do after just two weeks against three different types of human breast cancer. This is the before uh, cancer cell growth powering weight 100% and then after eating a plant-based diet for 14 days. Here's a um, kind of the before picture representative photomicrograph, photograph taken under a microscope. A layer of breast cancer cells, a confluent layer is laid down in a petri dish and then blood from women eating the standard American diet is dripped on those cancer cells and as you can see um, even people eating pretty crappy diets have some uh, ability to kind of break down cancer. But uh, after just two weeks eating healthy, blood was drawn from the same women. So they acted as their own controls. Same women, two weeks later, and this is what you're left with. So the same confluent layer of the kind of carpet of cancer is laid down, and just a few cells remain. Before and after just two weeks eating healthy. Their blood became that much more hostile to cancer. Now slowing down the growth of cancer is nice, uh, getting rid of it is even better. There's what's called apoptosis, programmed cell death. Our body's able to kind of reprogram cancer cells, forcing them into early retirement. This is what's called tunnel imaging, measures DNA fragmentation, cell death. So uh, dying cells kind of light up as little white spots. And as you can see, um, uh, you're not uh, totally defenseless eating um, uh, uh, the standard American diet. But then you take these same, um, uh, so her blood can kill off a few same women two weeks later, 14 days of healthy plant-based living, and their blood can do this. It's like you're an entirely different person inside. What kind of blood do we want in our body? What kind of immune system, right? Do we want blood that just kind of you know, rolls over when new cancer cells pop up? Or do we want blood circulating to every nook and cranny in our body, body with the power to slow down and stop it? The same blood now coursing through these women's bodies gained the power to significantly slow down and stop breast cancer cell growth after just two weeks. Now, this dramatic strengthening cancer defenses was after two weeks of diet and exercise. They had these women out walking 30 to 60 minutes a day. You say, well, wait a second. If you have two interventions, how do you know what role diet plays? So research decided, researchers decided to put it to the test. This is measuring cancer cell clearances, what we saw before, the effect of blood 
um, of those who ate a plant-based diet, in this case for an average of 14 years, along with mild exercise, like walking every day. Compare that to your um, uh, cancer-stopping power of your average sedentary meat-eater, I see a little burger there, um, uh, which is essentially non-existent. All right, but this middle group, this is the uh, interesting group. 14 years um, uh, of uh, standard American diet, um, but 14 years of daily, strenuous, hour-long exercise like calisthenics. They wanted to know if you exercise long enough, if you exercise hard enough, can you rival some strolling plant eaters? And the answer is exercise worked. No question. But literally 5,000 hours in the gym appeared no match for a plant-based diet. So same thing as before, there's that tunnel imaging. Even if you're a couch potato, eating fried potatoes, you are not totally defenseless. You can knock off a few cancer cells. If you exercise strenuously an hour a day, you can knock off cancer cells left and right, but nothing appears to kick more cancer tush than a plant-based diet. We think it's because of animal proteins, meat, um, dairy, egg white proteins, increase the level of IGF-1 in our body, insulin-like growth factor 1, which is a cancer-promoting growth hormone involved in the acquisition progression of malignant tumors. But if we lower our animal protein intake, put people on a plant-based diet for two weeks, the IGF-1 level drops, put people on a plant-based diet for years, it drops even further, and their levels of IGF-1 binding protein go up. IGF-1 binding protein, that's one of our ways our body protects itself from cancer, from accelerated growth by releasing a binding protein in the bloodstream to tie up any excess IGF-1. Sure, in as little as two weeks, you can drop, you can force down the production of IGF-1 in your body, but what about the IGF-1 you have for the bacon and eggs you had three weeks ago? Well, your liver releases the snatch squad of binding proteins to pull out any excess IGF-1 out of the system. It goes up after weeks and benefits appear to continue uh, to accrue over years, the longer you eat healthy. Here's the experiment that really nailed IGF-1 is the villain. Same as last time, go on a plant-based diet, cancer cell growth drops, cancer cell death shoots up. But here's the interesting column here. What if you add back to the cancer just the amount of IGF-1 banished from your system by eating healthy? You erase the diet and exercise effect. It's almost as if you never started eating healthy at all. Right? So the reason. The largest prospective study on diet and cancer ever published found that the incidence of all cancers combined was lower among those eating meat-free diets, uh, maybe because they're eating less animal protein, so they get less IGF-1 in their system and less cancer growth. How much less cancer? Middle-aged men and women with high protein intake, 75% increased total mortality and fourfold increased risk of dying from cancer, but not all protein, specifically animal protein, which makes sense given the higher IGF-1 levels. The academic institution sent out a press release with a memorable opening line, that chicken wing you're eating could be as deadly as a cigarette. Explaining that a diet rich in animal proteins during middle age makes you four times more likely to die from cancer, which is uh, comparable to smoking. What was the response to this revelation that diets high in meat, eggs, and dairy could be harmful of health as smoking? Well, one nutrition scientist replied that it would be potentially dangerous to compare the effects of smoking with the effects of meat and cheese. Why? Because a smoker might think, why bother quitting smoking if my ham and cheese sandwich is just as bad for me? So better not to tell anybody about the whole meat and dairy thing. 
So it reminds me of a famous Philip Morris ad, cigarette ad, that tried to downplay the risks by saying, look, you think secondhand smoke is bad, increasing the risk of lung cancer 19%, drinking one or two glasses of milk every day, maybe three times as bad, 62% increase in uh, uh, risk of lung cancer, or doubling the risk frequently cooking with oil, or tripling the risk of heart disease eating non-vegetarian, or multiplying your risk sixfold if you eat lots of meat and dairy, more than average. So, let's keep some perspective here. The risk of lung cancer, maybe uh, from secondhand smoke, maybe well below the uh, risk reported for every, for other everyday activities. So, Breathe deep. <laughs> it's like saying, ah, don't worry about getting stabbed because pff, getting shot so much worse, right? Uh, how about neither? Two risks don't make a right. Now, of course, you'll notice Philip Moore stopped throwing dairy under the bus once they purchased Kraft Foods. But <clears throat> okay, just 13 causes of death to go. What? All right. <clears throat> Let me uh, quickly run through the list. Top three killers used to be heart disease, cancer, and stroke. Oh, that's so 2007. Now, it's heart disease, cancer, and COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases like emphysema. Thankfully, COPD um, can be prevented with the help of a plant-based diet, even treated with plants. If you want to check that, improving lung function over time, the only um, intervention that's been shown to do that. Of course, the tobacco industry view these landmark findings a little differently. Instead of adding plants to one's diet, to prevent emphysema, wouldn't it be easier to just add them to cigarettes? <laughs> and indeed, the addition of acai berries to cigarettes evidently has a protective effect against emphysema in smoking mice. <laughs> Who would have thunk it, right? Next, they're going to start putting berries in meat. And indeed, I couldn't make this stuff up. <laughs> Adding fruit extracts to burger patties was not without its glitches, though the blackberries dyed the burger patties with a distinct purplish color, for example. Uh, though infusing lamb carcasses with kiwi fruit juice before rigor mortis sets in evidently does improve tenderness, you can even improve the nutritional profile of frankfurters by adding powdered grape seeds. Uh, though there were complaints about uh, grapeseed particles becoming visible in the final product. And you know, if there's one thing we know about hot dog eaters, it's that they're picky about what goes in their food. Right? <laughs> uh, oh, pig anus, uh, but grape seeds, ew. Strokes are killer number four. Preventing strokes may be all about eating potassium-rich foods, yet most Americans don't even reach the recommended minimum daily intake. And by most, I mean 98 98% of us eat potassium deficient diets because 98% of us don't eat enough plants. Potassium comes from the words pot ash. Take any plant, put it in a pot, reduce it to ash, um, uh, add some water, boil it off. You're left with a white residue at the bottom called pot ash. Yum, potassium. That's how they got the name. It used to call it vegetable alkali. Uh, but I just say that because that's. Um, uh, um, uh, a way to remember that that's where uh, potassium is largely found. But who can name me a food, plant food particularly high in potassium? Anybody? There, look, hold it up. <laughs> I don't know why that's like one of, the, one of the few things everybody knows about nutrition, right? Bananas, good source of potassium. Chiquita must have had a great PR firm or something. Turns out bananas don't even make the top 50 sources. Coming here, 
Um, coming in here right at number 86, right behind fast food vanilla milkshakes. It goes fast food <laughs> and then bananas. In fact, uh, when I was uh, putting together the new book, I went back to see if the USDA had updated their database, and they did. And now, bananas don't even make the top 1,000. Coming in at number 1,611, right after Reese's Pieces. I'm serious. All right, bananas don't even make the top 1,000. In fact, if you look at the next leading cause of death, um, uh, but before, the top source is greens, beans, and dates, for those of you who really want to know where you find potassium, whereas bananas don't even make uh, the top list. Um, in fact, if you look at the next leading cause of death, bananas could be downright dangerous. You've got to watch out for them. Alzheimer's, now our sixth leading killer, staggering four million Americans affected. 20 years ago, it wasn't even in the top 10 leading causes of death. According to the latest dietary guidelines for the prevention of Alzheimer's disease, the two most important things we can do is reduce our consumption of meat, dairy, and junk, junk and replace them with vegetables, um, legumes, which means bees, split peas, chickpeas, and lentils, um, fruits, and whole grains. This is based in part on data going back over 20 years now. Those that eat meat, red meat, white meat didn't matter. Between two to three times more likely to become demented later in life. And the longer one eats meat free, the lower one's risk appears to drop. Next on the list is type 2 diabetes, which can be prevented, treated, even reversed with a plant-based diet, something we've known since back in the 1930s. Uh, within five years, about a quarter of the diabetics were off all insulin, but, uh, you know, look, plant-based diets are also relatively low-calorie diets, right? Maybe the diabetes got better just because they lost so much weight, right? In fact, you can, stomach stapling surgery can reverse diabetes, right? So to tease that out, what we would need is a study where they put people on a healthy diet but forced them to eat so much food that they would not lose any weight, right? Then you could see if a plant-based diet had specific benefits beyond just all the weight loss. We'd have to wait another 44 years, but here it is. Subjects were weighed every day. If they started to lose weight, they were made to eat more food. In fact, so much more food, uh, many of the subjects had problems eating it all, like not another salad. Um, but they eventually adapted, so no significant alterations in body weight despite restricting meat, eggs, dairy, and junk. So with zero weight loss, did a plant-based diet still help? Overall insulin requirements were cut about 60%, and half were able to get off of insulin altogether, despite no change in weight. How many years did this take? No. 16 days. Average of 16 days later. Right? Um, so we're talking diabetics who've had diabetes for as long as 20 years, injecting 20 units of insulin a day, and then 13 days later, off all insulin. Here's patient 15, 32 units of insulin on the control diet, right? And then 18 days later, on none. Actually, lower blood sugars on 32 units less insulin. That's the power of plants. And as a bonus, their cholesterol dropped like a rock, down to under 150 in 16 days. So just like moderate changes in diet typically only give us moderate reductions in cholesterol, how moderate do you want your diabetes? Everything in a moderation is a truer statement than many people may realize. Right? Moderate changes in diet can leave one with moderate blindness, moderate kidney failure, moderate amputation, maybe just a few toes or something. Right? 
Moderation in all things is not necessarily a good thing. You know that study that purported to show that diets high in meat, eggs, and dairy could be harmful to the health of smoking claims that those who eat lots of meat, eggs, and dairy are four times more likely to die from diabetes. But if you look at the actual study, you'll see that's not true. Those eating lots of animal protein were not four times more likely to die from cancer, um, uh, to die from diabetes. They had 73 times um, a higher risk of dying from diabetes though that's quite a confidence interval, as you can see. Um, now, those who chose moderation, um, uh, only eating a moderate amount of animal products, right, only had 23 times the risk of death from diabetes. Killer number eight is kidney failure, um, which can be both prevented and treated with a plant-based diet, and no surprise, why kidneys are highly vascular organs. Harvard research found three significant dietary factors associated with reducing kidney function, declining kidney function, animal protein, animal fat, and cholesterol. Animal fat can alter the actual structure of the kidneys based on studies like this showing plugs of fat basically kind of clogging up the works in autopsied human kidneys. And the animal protein can have a, proud, a profound effect on kidney function, inducing what's called hyperfiltration, increasing the workload on the kidney, but not, interestingly, plant protein. So you eat a meal of tuna fish, and you can see increased pressure in the kidneys going up one, two, three hours after um, the meal. But if instead of a tuna salad sandwich, you had a tofu salad sandwich with the same amount of protein, no effect. It's no problem for our kidneys to deal with plant protein. Why does animal protein cause this overload reaction but not plant protein? Well, it appears to be to, due to inflammation triggered by the animal protein. We know this because you can give this powerful anti-inflammatory drug along with the tuna fish, and you can abolish that hyperfiltration, that kind of protein leakage effect in response to meat ingestion. Then there's the acid load. Uh, animal protein induces the formation of acid in the kidneys, which can lead to what's called tubular toxicity, damage to the kind of little uh, delicate uh, urine-making tubes in the kidneys. Um, acid, uh, animal proteins in general, animal foods in general, tend to be acid-forming, whereas plant foods tend to be relatively neutral or actually alkaline, um, base-forming within the kidneys to counter some of that acid. So the key to halting the progression of chronic kidney disease uh, might be in the produce market rather than the pharmacy. No wonder plant-based diets have been used to treat kidney disease for decades. Here's protein leakage on the conventional low-sodium diet, which um, we physicians tend to put people on. But then if you switch them to a supplemented vegan diet, um, uh, uh, then back to conventional, then back to plant-based, then back to conventional, then back to plant-based. You can switch on and off kidney dysfunction like a light switch based on what goes into people's mouth. Kidney number nine, killer, no, kidney number nine. Killer number nine is respiratory infections. What possible role could diet play there? Here we are in flu season. Well, you obviously haven't seen my video, Kale and the Immune System, talking about the immunostimulatory effects of kale. Is there anything that kale cannot do? <laughs> Boosting antibody production sevenfold, but this is in vitro, in a petri dish. What about in people? 
Older men and women split into two groups right before their pneumovax vaccination, their pneumonia vaccination. Um, and uh, they split them into two groups. One group continued to eat as they always had. The other group added just a few servings of fruits and vegetables to the diet. And you see a significant improvement in protective antibody response. Just a few extra servings of fruits and vegetables. This wasn't cutting out meat or anything. Just adding some fruits and vegetables to their daily diet could significantly boost their protective immune function. Killer number 10 is suicide. Now, we've known that people who eat healthier tend to have healthier mood states. Um, uh, typically, only about half the levels of uh, depression, anxiety, and stress um, using these kind of validated scoring systems. Um, uh, researchers suspect that it's the arachidonic acid, this inflammatory omega-6 uh, fatty acid found predominantly in chicken and eggs in the American diet. We can't tell if it's cause and effect until you put it to the test. So they took people eating the standard American diet, removed eggs, removed um, uh, poultry, as well as uh, other meats uh, from their diets. Got a significant improvement in mood within just two weeks. Um, thanks perhaps to the removal of arachidonic acid from their diet, which they thought was adversely impacting their mental health via a cascade of neuroinflammation. They thought this uh, arachidonic acid was inflaming their brains, but within just two weeks um, uh, of uh, cutting out eggs, chicken, and other meat, you could clear up that inflammation. Now, am I just cherry-picking, though? What about all the other randomized controlled clinical trials that showed different diets improve mood? There aren't any. Recent review concluded that only the plant-based diet uh, as I've been shown to do that, only that one fit the bill. It's hard to cherry pick when there's only one cherry. Works in a workplace setting too. I was happy to see all the fruits and veggies as I walked around on the floors here. Significant increases in uh, physical functioning, uh, general health, vitality, mental health, not surprisingly, translates into improved work productivity. The biggest such study, which um, uh, was just it was at 10 corporate sites at Geico, found that plant-based diets could uh, result in significant improvements in depression, anxiety, fatigue, emotional well-being, daily functioning, emotional health, etc. Lifestyle interventions such as exercise can help, um, but in terms of diet, plant-based diets appear to be have the most uh, data to support them. Killer number 11 is blood infections. Now, sure, foodborne bacteria can directly kind of burrow through the intestinal wall into your bloodstream, or women can creep up into their bladder. We've known for decades that it's bacteria creeping up from the rectum that causes bladder infections, but only recently did we figure out where this rectal reservoir of UTI bacteria causing um, uh, infecting E. coli was coming from, and that is chicken. We now have DNA fingerprinting proof of a direct link between the farm animals, the meat, and then uh, bladder infections. Solid evidence that urinary tract infections in people can be what's called a zoonosis, an animal to human disease. You say, wait a second, can't I just use a meat thermometer, cook the meat through? Unfortunately, no, because of cross-contamination. We've known for decades, you give someone a frozen chicken, in fact, you give 40 households a frozen chicken to prepare and cook in their own kitchen as they normally would, and a multitude of antibiotic-resistant chicken bacteria jump from the chicken into the gut of the volunteers before they even eat it. So you could incinerate that chicken to ash. It doesn't matter, you don't even have to eat any. It's just handling it in the kitchen. Within days, the drug-resistant chicken bacteria had multiplied to the point of becoming a major part of the person's gut flora. The chicken bacteria is kind of like taking over. 
Even if you follow safe handling practices, in, in addition to safe uh, cooking practices, rinsing everything, this is the official recommendation, rinsing everything with bleach, and they went in and sprayed a dilute bleach solution, solution on everything, you still may be leaving pathogenic fecal bacteria behind. This is Salmonella, Campylobacter, both serious human pathogens. The reason people have more bacteria from feces in their kitchen sink then on their toilet seat is because people aren't rinsing their chickens in the toilet, they're rinsing them in the sink. <laughs> so unless our kitchen is like some biohazard lab, the only way to guarantee we're not going to leave infection around the kitchens to not bring it into our homes in the first place. But the good news is it's not like you eat chicken once and you're colonized for life. And this chicken uh, in this... Uh, um, uh, study the chicken bacteria only seemed to last about 10 days before good bacteria was able to kind of muscle it out of the way. The problem is many families eat chicken more than once every 10 days and so may be kind of constantly reintroducing these chicken bugs into their systems. Now, wait a second, you can't sell unsafe cars, you can't sell unsafe toys, how is it even legal to sell unsafe meat? Well they do it by blaming the consumers. One USDA poultry microbiologist said, look, raw meats are not idiot-proof. They can be mishandled. When they are, it's like handling a hand grenade. You pull the pin, someone's going to get hurt. Right? See, if we get sick, it's our fault. Right? Now, while some may question the uh, wisdom of selling hand grenades in supermarkets, the USDA poultry expert disagrees. I think the consumer has most responsibility, just refuses to accept it. It's like a car company saying, yeah, we installed faulty brakes, but it's your fault for not putting your kid in a seatbelt. The head of the CDC's food poisoning division famously responded to this kind of blame the victim attitude coming from the meat industry. Is it reasonable, she asked, is it reasonable that if a consumer undercooks a hamburger, their three-year-old dies? Is that reasonable? Not to worry, though, the meat industry's on it. They just got FDA approval for a bacteria-eating virus to spray on the meat. Now, the industry's concerned about these so-called bacteriophages. Um, it may present somewhat of a challenge to the food industry, so of course, I'm not going to label it or anything. But if they think that's going to be a challenge, check out their other bright idea. This is the effect of extracted housefly pupae on pork present. This is a sciencey way of saying they want to smear a maggot mixture on the meat. Boy, it's a low cost and simple. Think about it, right? <laughs> Maggots live off of rotting flesh, however, at the same time, there's no reports of maggots having any serious diseases. So they must uh, be filled with some kind of antibacteria or something, right? So let's take some maggots, grow them up, three days old, wash them off, towel them off, a little Vitamix action there, and voila! Safer meats. We did kidney failure. What about liver failure? We've known for decades that a plant-based diet can be used to treat liver failure significantly reducing the toxins that would otherwise build up eating meat without a fully functional liver to detoxify your blood. One does have to admit, though, that there are some people eating plant-based diets with worsening liver function. They're called alcoholics, living off of potatoes and corn and grapes and barley. In fact, strictly plant-based, but they're not doing so well. It's not clear what the... High blood pressure is next affecting nearly 78 million Americans. That's one in three of us. And as we age, our pressures get higher and higher, such that by age 60, it strikes more than half. So well, wait a second, if it affects most of us when we get older, maybe it's less a disease and really just kind of an inevitable consequence of aging. Right? 
No, we've known since the 1920s that high blood pressure need not occur. Researchers measure the blood pressure of 1,000 people in rural Kenya who ate a diet centered around whole plant foods, whole grains, beans, vegetables, fruit, dark green leafy vegetables. Our pressures go up as we age and their pressures actually get better as they get older. And the lower the better. This whole 140 over 90 cutoff is arbitrary. Even people who start out with a blood pressure of so-called normal, 120 over 80, appear to benefit from blood pressure reduction. So the ideal blood pressure, the no benefit from reducing it further blood pressure, is actually 110 over 70. Is it even possible to get pressures down to 110 over 70? It's not just possible, it's normal for people eating healthy enough diet. So for two years at a rural Kenyan hospital, 1,800 patients admitted. How many cases of high blood pressure did they find? Zero. Wow, they must have low rates of heart disease, right? No, they had no rates of heart disease. Not a single case of atherosclerosis, arteriosclerosis, our number one killer was found. Rural China, too, about 110 over 70 their entire lives, 70-year-olds, same blood pressure as 16-year-olds. Now look, Africa, China, vastly different diets, but what did they hold in common? The common thing, they're plant-based day-to-day with meat only eaten on special occasions. Now why do we think it's the plant-based nature of their diets though? Because in the Western world, as the American Heart Association has pointed out, the only folks that are getting it down that low are the strict vegetarians coming in at 110 over 65. Based on the largest study of those eating uh, plant-based diets today, there's 89,000 Californians. There appears to be a stepwise drop in high blood pressure rates as one gets more and more plant-based. So this is starting out a uh, regular meat eater. Actually, they actually uh, the, the control group is actually uh, um, only ate about uh, serving two meat a day. So kind of a, a low meat eater compared to a semi-vegetarian or flexitarian who only ate meat like on a weekly basis as opposed to a daily basis. Those that ate no meat except fish um, just eggs and dairy, or those that are strictly plant-based. See the same thing with diabetes, right? A stepwise drop in diabetes rates as one's diet gets more and more plant-based. And the same thing with obesity. Anything over 25 is overweight. Even vegetarians in the U.S. are overweight. The only dietary group that met um, the quote-unquote ideal body weight were those eating strictly plant-based. But as you can see, look, it's not black and white, right? It's not all or nothing. Any steps we can make towards along that spectrum may accrue significant benefits. You can show this experimentally. You take vegetarians, you give them meat. What happens to their blood pressures? They go up. Or you, rem or you uh, take some meaties, remove meat, and the blood pressures go down within seven days. And this was after the vast majority had already reduced their blood pressure medications um, um, or eliminated them completely. They had to, otherwise their blood pressures would bottom out because you're actually treating the cause of their blood pressure. And so you can't be on blood pressure drugs if you have normal blood pressure. Lower pressures on fewer drugs. That's the power of plants. So does the American Heart Association recommend a no meat diet? No, they recommend a low meat diet, the so-called DASH diet. Why not vegetarian? When the DASH diet was created, were they just not aware of this landmark research done by, by Harvard's Frank Sachs? Uh, no, they were aware. The chair of the committee that came up with the DASH diet was Frank Sachs. Right. See, the DASH diet was explicitly designed with the number one goal of capturing the blood pressure lowering benefits of a vegetarian diet, yet contain enough animal products 
to make them palatable to the general public, right? They didn't think the public could quite handle the truth. Now, but in their defense, you can see what they were thinking, right? I mean, just like diets, just like drugs never work unless you actually take them, diets never work unless you actually eat them. They're like, well, no one's going to eat vegetarian, you know. So um, maybe on a population scale, if they kind of soft pedal it, then we'd actually save more lives overall. You know, but tell that to the thousand families a day that lose a loved one to high blood pressure. Maybe it's time to start telling Americans the truth. Killer number 14 is Parkinson's disease. Does a plant-based diet reduce the risk of Parkinson's? Well, most studies to date suggest a link between dairy products and Parkinson's, but why? Well, there's evidence that milk is contaminated with neurotoxic chemicals, high levels of pesticide residues, for example, found in milk and in the brains of Parkinson's victims. Talking about pollutants like uh, tetrahydroisoquinoline here, which is actually what scientists use to induce Parkinsonism in primates in the lab. It's found mostly in cheese, actually, so maybe the dairy industry should require toxin screenings of milk. Good luck with that. Um, you could always just not drink it, but then what would happen to your bones? That's a marketing ploy. If you look at the science, milk does not appear to protect against hip fracture risk, whether drinking during your adult years or drinking milk during your teen years, it doesn't matter. If anything, milk was associated with an increase in fracture risk. Maybe that's why we see higher, higher hip fracture rates um, among the populations with the greatest milk consumption. So, Swedish researchers decided to put it to the test. 100,000 men and women filed for up to 20 years, and milk-drinking women had higher rates of death more heart disease, significantly more cancer associated with each daily glass of milk consumption. Three um, glasses a day, um, uh, it's about a, um, a two-fold um, uh, risk of overall mortality, all-cause mortality, risk of death. And they had significantly more bone and hip fracture too, more milk, more fractures. Milk drinking men also had higher risk of death, but for some reason, you never see milk ads like this. I'm not sure why. Finally, aspiration pneumonia, uh, which is caused by swallowing problems due to Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or stroke, things that we've already covered. So, where does this leave us? Here are the 15 leading um, uh, reasons Americans die, and a plant-based diet can help prevent nearly all of them, can help treat more than a half of them, in some cases even reverse the progression of disease in some cases, including um, uh, um, sometimes our top three killers. Now look, there are drugs that can help too. You can take one drug, uh, cholesterol-lowering drugs every day for the rest of your life to help with your heart. It usually takes a couple families of blood pressure-lowering pills, or you can take insulin injections or control your blood sugars. But the same diet, though, does it all, right? So uh, it's not like there's one liver-healthy diet. They know you want to go on the heart-healthy diet or the brain-healthy diet. A liver-healthy diet is a kidney-healthy diet. It is a body healthy diet. One diet to rule them all. And what about drug side effects? I'm not talking about a little rash here. Side effects kill. Prescription drugs kill more than a hundred thousand Americans every year. Wait a second. A hundred and six thousand deaths a year from adverse drug side effects. That means the sixth leading cause of death is actually doctors. The sixth leading cause of death is me. Thankfully, I can be prevented with a plant-based diet. 
Um, no, seriously, actually, so there's actually a study, 15,000 American vegetarians, um, uh, compared to them, meat eaters had about twice the odds of being on aspirins, sleeping pills, tranquilizers, and acids, painkillers, blood pressure medications, laxatives, of course, as well as insulin. So plant-based diets are great for people that don't like taking drugs, for the don't like paying for drugs, and don't like risking drug side effects. Want to solve the healthcare crisis? I've got a suggestion. There's only one diet that's ever been proven to reverse heart disease in the majority of patients, a plant-based diet. So anyone, time anyone wants to sell you on some new diet they heard about, ask, do me a favor, ask them this simple question. Uh, wait a second, has it been proven to reverse heart disease? You know, the number one reason me and all my loved ones will die. If the answer is no, then why would you even consider it, right? I mean, if that's all a plant-based diet could do, reverse our number one killer, uh, shouldn't that be like the default diet until proven otherwise? And the fact that it also be helpful in preventing, arresting, and reversing other leading killers like type 2 diabetes and hypertension would seem to make the case overwhelming. Most deaths in the United States are preventable and related to nutrition. According to the most rigorous analysis of risk factors ever published is the Global Burden of Disease Study funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Number one cause of death in the United States and number one cause of disability is our diet and has since bumped tobacco smoking to number two. Smoking now only kills about a half million Americans every year, whereas our diet kills hundreds of thousands more. So let me end with a thought experiment. Imagine yourself a smoker back in the 1950s. The average per capita consumption of cigarettes was about 4,000 a year. So the average American smoked half pack a day. Right? Think about that. All right. The media was telling you to smoke. Famous athletes agreed. Even Santa Claus wanted you. I mean, look. You want to keep fit um, and uh, stay uh, where and, uh, and and stay slender, um, and so you make sure to smoke and eat a lot of hot dogs to stay trim and eat lots of sugar to stay slim and trim. A lot better than that apple there. I mean, sheesh. <laughs> Though apples do connote goodness and freshness, reads one internal tobacco industry memo, which brings up many possibilities for making a youth-oriented cigarette, like an apple-flavored cigarette for kids. <laughs> Shameless. For digestion's sake, you smoke. I mean, no curative power is claimed by Philip Morris, but an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, so hey, better safe than sorry, and smoke. Blow in her face and she'll follow you anywhere. No woman ever says no. They're so round, so firm, so fully packed. After all, John Wayne smoked them until he got lung cancer and died. Back then, even the paleo folks were smoking. And so were the doctors. Now, this is to not to say there wasn't controversy within the medical profession. Sure, some doctors smoked camels, but others preferred Lucky. So it was kind of, there was a little uh, disagreement there. The leader of the U.S. Senate agreed. I mean, who wouldn't want to give their throat a vacation? Not a single case of throat irritation 
because no 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 uh, no surprise cigarettes are just as pure as the water you drink and look if you do get irritated no problem your doctor can write you a prescription for cigarettes this is an ad from the journal of the american medical association so when mainstream medicine is saying that smoking may be on balance beneficial when the American Medical Association is saying that, where could you turn back then if you just wanted the facts? What's the new data advanced by science? She was too tired for fun, and then she smoked a camel. <laughs> Babe Ruth spoke of proof positive medical science, that is when he still could speak, before he died of throat cancer. Now, by some miracle, there was a smokingfacts.org website back then, that could deliver the science directly, bypassing commercially corruptible uh, institutional filters, you would have become aware of studies like this. An Adventist study in California in 1958 that showed the non-smokers at least 90% less likely to die of lung cancer. But this wasn't the first. When famed surgeon Michael DeBakey was asked why his studies published back in the 30s, linking smoking and lung cancer, were simply ignored, he had to remind people what it was like back then. Smoking was everywhere, it was in the movies, uh, medical meetings were one heavy haze of smoke. Smoking was normal. So, back to our thought experiment. If you're a smoker in the 50s, in the know, what do you do? With access to the science, you realize the best available balance of evidence suggests your smoking habit not so good for you. So, do you change or do you wait? If you wait until your doctor tells you, between puffs, to quit, you could have cancer by then. If you wait until the powers that be officially recognize it, like the Surgeon General did in the subsequent decade, you could be dead by then. It took 25 years for the Surgeon General report to come out. It took more than 7,000 studies. 7,000 studies in the deaths of countless smokers for the first Surgeon General report was finally released in the 1960s. You think maybe after the first 6,000 studies it could have given people a little heads up or something? Now, powerful industry. All right. So one wonders how many people are currently suffering needlessly from dietary diseases. Maybe we should have stopped smoking after the 700th study like this. So as a smoker in the 50s, on one hand, you had all of society, the government, the medical profession itself telling you to smoke. And on the other hand, all you had was the science. If you're even lucky enough to know about studies like this. All right, let's fast forward 55 years. There's a new Adventist study out of California warning Americans about the risk of something else they may be putting in their mouth. And it's not just one study. According to the latest review, Tom's total sum of evidence uh, suggests mortality from all causes put together, including many of our dreaded diseases, stroke, cancer, etc., significantly lower among those eating plant-based. So, Instead of someone going along with America's smoking habits in the 50s, imagine you or someone you care about going along with America's dietary habits today. What do you do? I mean, with access to the science, you realize the best available balance of evidence suggests you know, your eating habits are not so great for you. So do you wait or do you change? If you wait until your doctor between bites um, tells you to change, um, it may be too late. In fact, um, uh, the uh, AMA actually went on record refusing to endorse the Surgeon General's report. Um, could it have been because they just got a uh, $10 million check from the tobacco industry? Hmm. 
Okay, so we know why the AMA was sucking up to the tobacco industry back then, but why weren't individual doctors speaking out? Well, there were a few gallant souls ahead of their time speaking up, um, uh, standing up against uh, industries killing millions, but why not more? Because maybe um, it's because the majority of physicians themselves smoke cigarettes, just like the majority of physicians today continue to eat foods that are contributing to our epidemic of dietary diseases. What was the AMA's rallying cry back then? Everything in moderation. Extensive scientific studies have proven that smoking in moderation is okay. Sound familiar? Today, the food industry uses the same tobacco industry tactics. Supplying misinformation, twisting the science. The same scientists for hire paid to downplay the risks of secondhand smoke and toxic chemicals were the same paid for by the National Confectioners Association to downplay the risks of candy and the same paid by the meat industry to downplay the risks of meat. Consumption of animal products and processed foods caused at least 14 million deaths around the world every year. 14 million people dead every year. Plant-based diets may now be considered perhaps the nutritional equivalent of quitting smoking. How many more people have to die, though, before the CDC encourages people not to wait for open-heart surgery to start eating healthy as well? Until the system changes, we have to take personal responsibility for our health, for our family's health. We can't wait until society catches up to the science because it's a matter of life and death. Dr. Kim Williams became the president of the American College of Cardiology last year. He was asked why well, he follows his own advice to follow a plant-based diet. He says, I don't mind dying. Dr. Williams replied, I just don't want it to be my own fault. Thank you. Um, for any of you who would like to share this talk with anyone, I've got free copies of all my DVDs. So this is called, from an Uprooting the Leading Cause of Death. Um, uh, so please feel free to come take them. I also have, I go through the list of the most disabling diseases, the most common diseases, the most dreaded diseases, not just the ones that kill us, along with uh, lots of other DVDs. Um, and so happy to have my new book here, How Not to Die. Um, three weeks of New York bestseller list, very exciting. All proceeds from the sale of my books and my speaking engagements and DVDs, my whole life all goes to charity, of course. And all my work is available free at nutritionfacts.org. Happy to take any questions, sign books, anything. Yes? There, uh, have there been any rigorous studies looking at um, why, let's say, animal protein is causing things like inflammation and the cascades, right? Because I'm interested in, we have this spectrum of the McDonald's hamburger versus perhaps uh, you know, the Jill Salatin-like, sure. pasture-raised, sure. you know, uh, grass-fed beef, right? Right, right? And like, and we know that a lot of animal feed, you know, is crap and contains Roundup and whatever. Sure, and all sure, and yeah, all yeah, yeah, great question. Right? So no, no. Do you have a sense of that? And like, is, is there a possibility that if one kept eating uh, animal-based foods but did it with Sure, grass-fed, organic, yeah, exactly. yeah, sure, that, no, absolutely. That we might see lower levels right, right. of inflammation. 
So for the inflammation, we think it's actually an endo, the current theory is that it's an endotoxin effect. So endotoxins are components of, uh, of bacterial cell walls, essentially, that aren't destroyed by cooking, not destroyed by stomach acid, proteolytic enzymes in the gut. So it doesn't matter how much you cook it, but then you just have these kind of fragments, bacterial cell wall fragments. They get absorbed into the system. Actually, fat helps kind of transmit it through the gut wall. So we get what's called endotoxemia. We get these endotoxins in our bloodstream. We've evolved for millions of years to think, ah, bacteria in our bloodstream, that's a bad thing. So we get the spike of inflammation two, three, four hours right after the meal, and then that uh, calms right down. Because you can see um, such dramatic short-term acute effects, then we can put uh, different meats to the test. And that what was done. So um, study what was done actually in Australia. So they chose um, wild-caught meat, which there is kangaroo meat, like their venison basically. And they compared that. They compared the spike of inflammation from kangaroo meat to retail meat bought off the, you know, the supermarket shelves. And they found that the kangaroo meat caused significantly less inflammation than the retail meat, though one could argue that, you know, why have any inflammation at all where eating plant foods, you know, antioxidant-rich plant foods, you actually get it, or can be anti-inflammatory, actually. And so, yes, less inflammation, so definitely a step in the right direction. Um, probably the greatest benefits to kind of the organic meat movement is that it makes it really expensive. Right, and so no, but so people eat less, right? I mean, so and that's really what the recommendation, right? Reduce meat consumption, meatless Mondays, all these things. So look, I mean, so if people really only go to restaurants that have that, or really only buy, you know, they're spending, you know, then it's more, you know, like a condiment or a flavoring to a dish as opposed to a big hunk, right? And so I would not be surprised if you studied cohort of people out, people that really did eat that way would have significantly better, but it may be more tied to the quantity of meat that they'd be eating because they're eating higher quality meat um, than actually the, the meat itself. Because it's still the saturated fat and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had two questions actually. Please. Um, first one is, uh, is there a way to be a vegetarian in wrong way? Like maybe oh. you're, let's say, oh. yeah. to, I don't know, you don't eat enough protein or uh, some, or you don't get yeah, yeah, no. yeah, 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 thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for that question. You know, a couple of decades ago, if you're a vegetarian, then by definition, you had to eat healthy. Like, you go to the supermarket, like the produce aisle, what are you going to eat, right? But now, there's vegan junk food. There's literally something, there's a product called vegan bacon grease. There's like, you can get vegan ice cream, you can get vegan crispy. There's a, the best donut in New York City was some Brooklyn vegan donut shop, right? I mean, there's a, right? Um, yeah, Dunwell Donuts. Okay, so... Um, so you can eat, it's, you know, it's like the gluten-free people. If you had celiac disease a couple decades ago, you know, you had to eat healthy because you can eat junk food. Now you can get gluten-free junk food. You can get vegan gluten-free junk food. You're okay. So you can, I mean, so you can eat as on, in fact, the unhealthiest thing you can find in the store actually has vegetable in the title. It's partially hydrogenated vegetable oil, like Crisco, like shortening. That's the worst thing, trans fats. It's worse than saturated fats. It's worse than processed meat. It's the worst thing we could possibly eat. It's made, it's plant-based. All right, so that's why I don't like the term vegan, vegetarian, because that tells me, as a physician, what you don't eat. It doesn't tell me what you do eat, right? So, but that's why if you talk, oh, I eat uh, a whole food plant-based, okay, you tell me, okay, you're eating whole food, okay, but you can still screw that up. And how do you screw that up? By not ensuring a regular, reliable source of vitamin B12. There's two vitamins that are not made by plants. One is vitamin D, which is made by animals, such as yourself, when you walk outside and get some sunshine. Um, it's actually not a vitamin, it's a hormone created by sun. 
But no matter how long you sunbathe naked in Times Square on New Year's Day, the, sun the sun's rays are at such an angle at this latitude during the winter months, you're not going to make any vitamin D. January, February, no vitamin D production in New York City. I mean, they actually did these studies using human foreskins on the tops of buildings here in New York City. Because they, well, you need human skin. And uh, anyway, um, no vitamin D production whatsoever. Um, so, um, so, uh, you so, uh, so uh, um, you need to get a, you need to get vitamin D depending on where you, I mean, we evolved running around naked in equatorial Africa getting baked in the sun all day. We're not used to living at this latitude and wearing lots of clothes. Okay. Um, and uh, vitamin B12 is not made by plants either, not made by animals, made by little microbes that blanket the earth. So you know, we get all the B12 we need drinking out of a mountain stream or well water or something. But now we chlorinate our water supply to kill off any bacteria. So don't get a lot of B12 in our water anymore. Don't get a lot of cholera either. It's a good thing. <laughs> right? But now, because we live in such a sanitary situation, so our fellow great apes get B12 from bugs, dirt, and feces. Right, but let's see, I prefer supplemental sources. So, um, uh, so I recommend a vitamin B12 supplement for people eating plant-based diet. Uh, one 2,500 microgram tablet once a week costs less than three bucks a year, all the B12 you need. There's also B12 fortified foods like this soy milk and breakfast cereal and things like that. But I tend, I encourage people to eat less of those processed foods. So probably the safest, cheapest way is just get it. But I'm so glad you brought that up because that, that, uh, that's critical. B12 is critical for neurological health and for blood health. What about omega-3s, lots of things? Oh, yeah. So, so, omega, so there are essential fatty acids, omega-6, omega-3, essential fatty acids, meaning that our bodies can't make them. We need to take them into our diet. Um, and so the current recommendation is we need to get uh, two, uh, basically about two grams of, uh, of omega-3s. And, so uh, and so you can get that in alpha-linolenic acid, like a tablespoon of ground flax seeds, all the omega-3s you you dig for the day, so that's part of my daily dozen foods I encourage people to eat every day in their diet. Is it, one is a tablespoon of flax seeds. Why you need to get your omega threes? Oh, you can also eat walnuts or dark green leafy vegetables or chia seeds, hemp seeds, lots of things. But you need to get those into your diet. Um, uh, the uh, and now we and our bodies can take those short chain omega threes and elongate them into the so-called fish fats like EPA and DHA. The question though is, can we do it enough for optimal health? And that, I think, still remains an open question. So I actually encourage people to um, take 250 milligrams of a pollutant-free uh, source of long-chain omega-3s, EPA, DHA. And the only way you can do that pollutant-free is either yeast-based or algae-based um, EPA, DHA. That's actually where the fish get it from in the first place. We can kind of cut out the middle fish and go straight to the source. Um, but um, so that's, uh, and not for heart health, actually, because the studies have shown we now know that you know, recommendations to, to increase fatty fish consumption or take fish oil capsules don't appear to help um, prevent heart disease or help treat heart disease, but for cognitive health. Um, uh, there's a study show, um, linking um, uh, kind of accelerated cerebral volume loss with low, um, uh, uh, omega with low omega-3 index, which is these long-chain omega-3. So I encourage people um, to include that. Absolutely. Great. Good question. Thank you. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And so they actually take care of themselves because you eat so many more calories. Um, and so, I mean, so you're just eating more food. So if you stick to healthy foods, you still, you can do all the math and you can see that you're going to get kind of 
all the iron you need, all the protein you need. We actually get about 70% more protein than we need, even people that are sedentary. Um, uh, but, uh, but, right, so it, but you absolutely have increased calorie needs. The only problem, you, anytime you really run um, into problems is uh, athletes who are, um, who are trying to, uh, to calorie restrict, um, who are actually trying to kind of lose weight, preserve the body mass. Um, and if you're not eating enough calories, so they go on these like starvation diets. Um, and so if you're not eating enough food, then you really have to be careful to make sure that food really packs a nutritional punch. So you really got to eat the most kind of nutrient-dense foods. So if you just lived off of, you know, iceberg lettuce and, you know, cotton candy or something. But even healthy, you know, you, I mean, you, know, you could run into some problems. But people eating enough food um, uh, shouldn't be a problem. Should we avoid potatoes, bread, rice, and pasta? So it's interesting. So if you look at... Um, uh, so, uh, I do encourage people to, and the bottom line is encourage people to stick to whole foods whenever possible. So, so pasta is fine, but I'd like people to have whole grain pasta. Um, uh, and actually, sweet potatoes, I think, are healthier than white potatoes, and I give my kind of reasons why. Um, and so, and in general, flour products, even, in whole, even when they're whole wheat, are not great because um, you actually, you, you starve your microbial self. We actually, because when you, um, if you actually eat, so they do this really neat studies where they basically give people the same diet, but they grind up everything beforehand. So instead of beans, they have be give some people chickpeas, some people hummus. They give some people a bread and some people like actually wheat berries. And, they give, and you do that for grains. And you chop up your oatmeal or steel cut oatmeal. Um, and you can... Um, dramatically boost the weight of their stool. And actually how that, most of the weight of a stool is actually pure bacteria, just trillions and trillions of bacteria. And so you are this, so much, because little pieces of starch and starch, no matter how well you chew, actually get down a past our small intestine into our lower intestine. And actually, these are the prebiotics, the fiber-resistant starch, the prebiotics that feed our good gut bacteria, so much so that you could, they go crazy when you eat, um, you know, kind of whole, intact grains, not just whole grains, so whole intact grains are preferable because then we leave some for our gut bacteria and we're learning more and more about the benefits of the microbiome. Um, whereas when you process foods into flour or grind them up, um, you actually, they become so efficiently absorbed that, you, that other than the fiber, you're not leaving anything. Um, and we feed them, they feed us. There's really some cool stuff out there about the microbiome. Yes? So, um, <clears throat> Uh, reverse amortize the effects of, like, say, eating bacon over the course of your life. You can say something like, every strip of bacon takes 17 minutes off the end of your life. And you can say this to someone, to kind of like show them the impact of their choices, and then say, well, yeah, but that's just the time at the end. Oh. So I was wondering if you had a response to that. Yeah, no, well, I mean, that, that brings up an important point. So we're actually living longer lives. Um, but uh, less, uh, but shorter uh, healthy lifespans. So we actually live like a year longer. We did 20 years ago, but we're actually two years shorter in terms of healthy lifespan without a major disabling disease, like the ability to stand for a certain number of minutes without having to sit down and things like that. These kind of severe disability. Um, and so it's not just about adding years to your life, it's adding life to your years, right? I mean, so we want to be, you know, skydiving till the end um, and not just, so that's why, um, uh, so that's why, you know, I have this talk about, uh, you know, the most disabling diseases too. So yeah, if you're crippled with arthritis, maybe you don't want to live an extra 10 years because you can't even move and right, absolutely. And, and I mean, spoiler alert, it's the same healthy diet that does. Uh, <laughs>
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, right, so, so you know, they, they have all these neat metrics like disability-adjusted life years. So not just how many years you have, but how many healthy years. Um, and you get the same kind of stats. In fact, that's what the Global Burden of Disease Study looked at dailies, looked at those disability-adjusted life years. So it's not just, so we're extending healthy lifespan. That's really a critical key. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. I've heard some things recently regarding benefits of alcohol, and then I've read things saying the opposite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does this play into it? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so alcohol consumption decreases risk of number one killer heart disease, increases risk of one type of stroke, hemorrhagic stroke, decreases risk of another type of stroke, ischemic stroke, increases the risk of cancer. And so you could see how we could be flopping back and forth, but bottom line is um, if th these are in people eating the standard American diet. Um, and people eating the standard American diet, adding alcohol to their um, uh, diet actually does extend lifespan because heart disease is killer number one. But people who even have a modicum of healthy behaviors, and by healthy behaviors, they said a fruit or vegetable serving a day. Yeah. Or, right? Um, uh, um, uh, uh, not currently smoking means you could have a lot of smoking past, but not currently smoking. I forget what the exercise, it was like, you know, 20 minutes walking every day, something like that. Um, it, if you fit those criteria, then um, the alcohol has no benefit. Um, but it thins your blood enough that when, you're, when your arteries are so clogged up, it can actually extend lifespan. Um, but, um, and unfortunately, even uh, light drinking um, increases the risk of breast cancer. So, you know, the big Harvard nurses study looked at women eating, even drinking less than a drink a day, one drink a day, um, had uh, significant increased risk of breast cancer. Um, so, um, in general, I encourage people to, um, to stay away from alcohol. Um, if you've heard of uh, Soylent and Meal Squares, what oh, are yeah, your yeah. opinions on those? Yeah, so, you know, you know it's like if you, um, if you like pick up, a, pick up a package of mushrooms in the store. You look at it, you turn around, look at the nutrition facts. Like there's nothing in there. A couple of B vitamins, maybe a few minerals, but you're like, oh, there's nothing. Put it back on the shelf. All right, and that's because right they're listing, you know, the, the, you know the top seven or so, you know, vitamins, and minerals. But what they're missing out of the phytonutrients, or in that case, the micronutrients. That there's literally tens of thousands of these phytonutrients, some of which uh, we think be maybe uh, the reason why we see some of these beneficial things. And so you can hit all the RDAs, but miss out on all the phytonutrients, the tens of thousands of phytonutrients. And so, um, you know, they, whether it's the carotenoids, like beta-carotene and lycopene and leukamine, um, and which is associated with eye health and brain health and all these things, we're just not, it's difficult to capture it in a whole food. And there's been some real kind of cautionary tales. So for example, you know, the beta-carotene debacle, where researchers noticed that people who had high beta-carotene levels lived longer, had less disease. I mean, it's a great indicator of health, how much beta-carotene you have in your bloodstream. Right? If I wanted to bet, you know, place bets on somebody, I want to know their beta-carotene levels. Okay, and so they said, aha, let's give people beta-carotene pills, right? Um, and so they took uh, people at high risk for cancer, smokers, because then we don't have to have a short study because you get so much cancer, gave, split them up into two groups, uh, beta-carotene pills or placebo, and beta-carotene group got more cancer. They had, more, they had to stop the study. It was, okay, so, okay. And then they went back and said, well, wait a second. Why did those people have high levels of beta-carotene in their blood? Uh, because they were eating super healthy foods. Dark green leafy vegetables, what has beta-carotene? Uh, sweet potatoes, right? So it's like a marker for healthy eating. You can't just, and, and actually beta-carotene is kind of a wimpy antioxidant. So if you take beta-carotene and kind of 
max out all your carotenoid receptors and then you eat tomato sauce and have an even more powerful antioxidant like lycopene, it goes right through you, doesn't get absorbed because you just took a beta carotene pill. That's what we think the mechanism is behind that. But so we just don't know enough about the biology to be able to kind of pick and choose um, which nutrient. And so, and then they tried vitamin E supplements and we had increased mortality. People were paying to, make, to shorten their lives by buying vitamin E supplements for themselves. So it's that kind of data that anytime someone tries to put it all, you know, put these kind of isolated nutrients and think, yes, can it keep you going? Absolutely. Is it great in a zombie apocalypse? Absolutely. Is it, you know, or, or the island, you know, you know, starving to death on that. But in terms of uh, maximizing health and longevity, um, I, I, sticking to whole foods would probably be a, a healthier option. Do you have the same, con same concern for something that's derived from whole foods like meal spirits or...? Um, so, yeah, well, so, I mean, so there's like, so that you can actually buy like fruit and vegetable extract pills, like powdered broccoli pills. Mm -hmm. And because 90% of broccoli is actually water, and so you get 10 times more broccoli in powder, you know, but the pills are this big. So 10 times more broccoli is like this much broccoli. That's still, you're only this much. Now, I would not be surprised if people taking those pills actually had benefits because that's that much more broccoli than most people eat. But, you know, I mean, you just can't get kind of pounds of food, right, in the, in the kind of same way. And so, yeah, so, uh, yeah. And, you know, and once you get down to chemical components, it doesn't really matter where it comes from. You know, vitamin C is ascorbic acid, whether you, you know, where, you know, however you get it from, whether you make it synthetically in a lab, you know. Yes. So there's a practical component to all yeah. this, right? Like, so as an example, uh, here at Google, we get lots of great free food. It's amazing. Yeah. So I can go out and, and get a huge helping of like broccoli and carrots and you know kale and whatever, and that's great. And then my question is, uh, a, and I'm not complaining about the food, but um, a, none of that's organic. Okay. So question about that. Right. And then, Second, like for instance, here a lot of that's uh, cooked with canola oil, mm, mm -hmm. um, and so like, do some of those pieces sort of cancel end mm. up canceling out? Okay. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, there's been some uh, interesting kind of you know computer modeling studies. Uh, so there's one famous one, the Food and Chemical Toxicology, that that suggested that if half of Americans ate a single more serving of fruits and vegetables, then we would prevent every year twenty thousand cancer deaths. Not just cancer cases, 20,000 cancer deaths, people that, that, would, that would have died had it not been for half of America eating one more serving of fruits and vegetables. That's how powerful fruits and vegetables are. But because they were modeling conventional fruits and vegetables, that additional pesticide load from all that extra conventional fruit and vegetable consumption would cause, in their estimation, 10 cancer deaths. So you only end up preventing 19,990 cancer, but that's a, so you get this tremendous benefit and then a small bump in risk. Not sure, why accept any risk at all? Choose organic, great, right? But we should never let concern about pesticides prevent us from stuffing our face with as many fruits and vegetables as possible. And what about the oil, Susan? Oh, yeah. So, um, so if you're going to cook with oil, canola would be probably the best choice. But so canola is a process, right? Obviously, it's processed. It's like a, I think of oil as kind of the table sugar of the carb kingdom, right? I mean, you take a sugar beet, super healthy food, you'd take out all the nutrition you left with table sugar, right? You take, well, you wouldn't take a canola plant. But, uh, uh, but, you know, you take a walnut, you remove all the nutrition, and you're left with, you know, walnut oil, though it still has some fat-soluble nutrients like vitamin E, etc. But it's, you're just, you, someone just stole nutrition from you. And it's the most calorically dense food. So one tablespoon, like 120 calories? 
Like, you weighed 120 calories of oil, you wouldn't even feel it, right? You, right? you had 100 calories of broccoli? 100 calories of strawberries? 100 calories of tomatoes? Like, that's a plate of food, right? Um, and so then, so just in terms of weight loss, in terms of caloric, of nutrient density in one's diet, you just wasted, you know, 5% uh, of your caloric bank for the day on essentially nothing. Well, it has omega-3s. I mean, so, but, you know, you really, you want to kind of maximize. You know, every bite of something is a, is a, is a, has an opportunity cost. It's a lost opportunity to eat something even healthier. That's how I kind of think about it. Yes? I think we have time for one more. All right. Right. Yeah. So whey. So whey. Uh, the the biggest problem with whey protein is it's a high in leucine content. So leucine is, is a branch chain amino acid that activates this kind of engine of aging enzyme called mTOR. Um, which is a fascinating story. I got a bunch of videos about it. This is really neat detective story. But basically, um, I mean, milk is, has evolved to do what? To promote growth, right? So dairy milk, literally to put a couple hundred pounds on a calf in a matter of months. And so it's supremely designed to both boost IGF-1, boost mTOR signaling, boost kind of accelerate growth, which it's not so great if you've already reached adult height. And I mean, so accelerating growth, so having growth hormones and growth factors in your body, at this stage, not so great because many of us are actually harboring so-called occult tumors. And so, um, uh, um, so even women by their, by their 40s, if you actually do autopsy studies, if you get hit by a bus, they have microscopic breast tumors. Most men actually have microscopic prostate um, tumors. So for example, American men have the same uh, rates of prostate cancer as Japanese men, but a tiny fraction of the death from prostate cancer. They die with their tumors instead of from their tumors because there's a third stage of cancer. Um, uh, there's, there's cancer initiation, the first mutated DNA that creates the cancer cell, and then there's a promotion stage where it grows, can grow for decades. Epithelial tumors like uh, colon cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer can take decades to grow. Um, and then the progression stage where it kind of spreads around the body. But in that stage, I mean, it takes a billion cells to show, a billion cancer cells to uh, show up on mammography, right? So early detection with mammography is really, really late detection. Um, and so it's all about slowing the doubling time. Um, so uh, breast cancer cells take between a few weeks to a few months to double once in size. Um, but, you know, we love, you know, the mathematics of exponential growth. You double 30 times and boom, we got a billion cells. Um, but, you know, you don't care if you get breast cancer in a century from now. You don't expect to be around that long. So it's not just about preventing cancer, but slowing down the growth of cancer. Um, and so we just don't, and, 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 and so the reason we think that high IGF-1 levels, high TOR signaling, leucine intake is associated with these, these cancers is because it's not that they're causing the cancer, but they're speeding up the, but the kind of the amplifying the growth of whatever hidden tumors you have. And so they'll actually appear within your lifespan, which is something that we don't want to have happen. Happy to sign books for anyone. Thank you so much. If anyone has any questions, please feel free. Hesitate to call me anytime. My contact information is on the site. Oh, and uh, take some DVDs if you're interested. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you you can visit g.co slash talks at google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. 
To discover more amazing content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle, at talks at Google. Talk soon.